On the night of August 31st, 1990, Adam Emery, his wife Elena, her sister Maria, and her husband Ronnie were on a double date in Warwick, Rhode Island. It was officially fair season, and so they opted to take Adam's beloved 1985 Pontiac Firebird and go to Rocky Point for dinner. They ate their clam chowder and clam cakes in the car with the windows rolled down, enjoying the warm summer evening weather, when suddenly a car emerged and accidentally sideswiped the vehicle, knocking out the left taillight. Instead of doing the right thing and pulling over, the vehicle took off instead. When all four looked up, they saw a red Ford LTD within 30 feet of them backing out of its parking space. Maria pointed out the car, thinking that was the one that had hit them, but this was not the driver. In fact, the actual offender would never be found. This case of mistaken identity would prove to be a grave error because it would ultimately cost the life of a 20-year-old man with a bright future ahead of him and begin the hunt for a fugitive that to this day has not been found. My name is Caitlin, and this is Wicked, a true crime podcast. It's probably a story that many Rhode Islanders remember pretty well. A convicted murderer disappears just hours after he's found guilty, never to be seen or heard from again. While some think he's dead, having jumped off the Newport Bridge, others, like family members of his victim, think he's still very much alive. Jason Bass, or Jay as he was called by his loved ones, and his cousin Joshua were in the same restaurant parking lot picking up their friend, 15-year-old John Gorman, who had just finished his shift at the Dell's Lemonade Stand nearby. They were going to bring him home and then go over to Jay's sister Diana's house for dinner. They backed out of the parking space and, at the same time, another car was too. What they didn't know was that as they were backing out, the other driver hit the neighboring car, a black 1985 Pontiac Firebird. As they made their way into the nearby town of Cranston, the Firebird was coming at them full speed, the driver flashing his headlights to get Jason to pull over. They began to panic, thinking, what the hell is this guy doing? The driver was Adam Emery, the guy who had just experienced a hit and run at the restaurant. Adam followed them for roughly another mile and a half before cutting them off in front of a house near Park Avenue, ironically just about causing an accident himself. According to an article by WPRI, Joshua and John could hear Elena yelling to her husband to take the knife that was on the side flap of the door. They testified that Adam ran up to the window and his brother-in-law ran to the front of the car. Adam with a military knife in his hand, screaming, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kick your ass. At that point, Jay's fight or flight kicks in and he puts the car into reverse and slams on the gas, peeling out of the driveway. But Adam was quick and he had gotten the top half of his body through the window in an attempt to turn off the ignition. Not smart, by the way. What a good way to send your own ass head first into that vehicle and throw all three of your victims out the windshield, but I digress. What ensued was complete and utter chaos. We've got a car speeding backward, a raging lunatic halfway through the window, hanging onto the door for dear life. We got three young men hysterically crying, justifiably fearing for their lives. They got about 1,200 feet back from the person's yard when Jay's car hit a boulder and came to a screeching halt. 
It is then that Adam stabbed Jay in the shoulder. He drew back and stabbed Jay a second time in the breastbone, the knife going right through his heart. Bruce Bishop, the man who lived in the house they had stopped in front of, heard the commotion outside, and coincidentally, Bruce was a correctional officer. Standing in the driveway, he witnessed Adam emerge from the vehicle, the now blood-soaked knife in his hands. Mr. Bishop commanded him to drop the knife, and Adam did as he was told, stating the obvious, I stabbed him. According to a 2020 article by Newport This Week, when Jay started to be attacked, Joshua had ran to a nearby home and began kicking the door to get the homeowner's attention, and in doing so, nearly kicked the door completely off of its hinges. And in a strange twist of fate, the home belonged to an off-duty Rhode Island State Police detective. Detective Kevin Hopkins had his wife dial 911 while he ran to the scene. He drew his pistol and froze the group until police and emergency personnel arrived. Jay stumbled out of his car, having already lost three quarters of his blood. And his last words were, I feel weak. All it took was a matter of seconds for him to collapse onto the driveway. EMS and police got there rather quickly, but life-saving measures weren't enough. It was too late. At 9.37 p.m., Jay was pronounced dead on arrival at Rhode Island Hospital's Trauma Center. Diane would not be serving her brother meatloaf and mashed potatoes that night. They would go untouched, cold, and instead of seeing her brother's smiling face when she got a knock on the door, it would be the somber faces of Warwick police detectives telling her that her brother had been murdered in a road rage incident. What is so sad to me is that had Jay just been stabbed in the shoulder, there's a chance that he could have survived his attack. When I look at Jay's photos that are featured in his online obituary, he actually looks younger than 20. If you didn't know his age, you would probably think he was still in high school. You can definitely see his Native American heritage in his features. He's got those distinctive high cheekbones and the little divot in his nose. He has an infectious smile and he has such a sweet face. I'm not even trying to sound weird, like he just, he looks so sweet and I can't see why anyone want to harm him. He looks like he wouldn't even hurt a fly. And he was only 20 years old. He was a baby. Before I continue the story, I just want to pause and take a moment to honor the victim and tell his. Jay came from humble beginnings. He was born in Providence, Rhode Island to working class parents, Everett Post and Barbara Bass. Dad Everett was mostly Cherokee Mohican and mom Barbara was half Cherokee. They were proud of their Native American roots and their home to this day still has Native American trinkets and keepsakes. Everett who worked as a security guard and Barbara owned a jewelry store and they lived on the first floor of a triplex in the Federal Hill section of Providence, Rhode Island. I can imagine that house of eight must have been packed in that small space, but nothing short of the good kind of crazy. And yes, I said a house of eight. Jay came from a large family. Aside from his sister Diane, he had five brothers. Raymond, Timothy, Alan, Kevin, and Matthew. Their home was filled with love, and it was apparent. According to an article by The Independent, Jay was a child at heart. He loved sports and collected football and baseball cards. He also loved singing 
even if he wasn't good at it. <laughs> and he would dance with his nieces in the living room when they would have music playing and they just, they loved their uncle, what can I say? He was known as the favorite uncle because he was able to get his nieces and nephews into the restaurant he worked at for half the price. And it wasn't uncommon for him to come home regularly with extra sausage and pepper sandwiches either. Although Jay was a bright kid, he struggled academically and ended up dropping out of school. Jay wasn't going to be the stereotypical high school dropout and bum though. He wanted to work. He loved to cook, so he got a job as a hamburger cook at Burger King, then eventually moved on to frying donuts at Mr. Donuts. The summer before his death, he had been hired to manage a food concession at Rocky Point Amusement Park. Contrary to what some may think, he wasn't in food service just because that was the most he could do with no high school diploma. His dream was to open his own diner someday. He wanted to have that hands-on experience before he opened his own business, and I think he would have been perfect for the job, really. That night, Detective Hopkins would become the detective assigned to Jay's case. Police brought in CSI and gathered evidence needed, two of those things being Adam's vehicle and Jay's vehicle. Forensic technicians use a technique known as forensic paint analysis. And this is such an interesting concept to me because I don't think we realize how unique paint really can be. While every paint is made up of various chemicals and ingredients, they don't always have the same chemistry. A company could make a certain color available for a specific make and model, appearing to look like it's been there for a number of years. It could even have the same color name. However, they may not actually be that same color. When comparing the paint from the scrapes of Adam's car to the paint on Jay's vehicle, the forensic technicians concluded the samples taken from the cars to not be a match. Although Adam was arrested that same night, the next few months would prove to be a living hell for Jay's family to get through. About a week after the death, Barbara and her daughter-in-law, Cindy, took a trip to a consignment store called Ann and Hope. They had to make the painful choice of what Jay would be wearing when he would be buried. So they found the nicest tux that they could find, and when they got to the checkout counter, the sales clerk asked what the special occasion was, and they told her that sadly it wasn't a special occasion. They were burying their loved one who had been murdered. By a really bad stroke of luck, one of Elena's sisters, Melinda Apollino, happened to be in that same store shopping for her kids' Catholic school uniforms. According to a Washington Post article by William Powers, Melinda became irate and stormed over to them. Why don't you just tell the truth, she said. That your son dragged my brother-in-law, that they tried to kill him. Why are you playing the victim? Why don't you just be honest? <laughs> how Christian of you, Melinda. <laughs> I can't even imagine how horrible she must have made them feel. What a disgusting comment. It wouldn't be the only angry exchange of words their family would receive, though. Family members and friends of Elena would make mean-spirited comments to them out in public shouting nasty things at them from a distance or even approaching them and spewing their mouth off. Many people were shocked when Adam was arrested and didn't want to believe he murdered someone, as he had never been in trouble with the law. But to others, not so much. You see, Adam had been a military policeman for the National Guard and practiced martial arts. He was one of those guys that by all counts was very much into his appearance. He strived for perfection in everything, even in his relationships. These aren't the only traits he possessed, though. Although he was academically gifted, having graduated from Rhode Island College's business school, 
He wasn't so gifted in the department of self-control and common sense. He was known to carry a knife around and was quite the hothead. So if you heard that Adam had knocked somebody out at a bar, for example, you probably wouldn't be surprised. But this didn't seem to bother Elena, who he met in college. Born Elena Duraco, she was of Northern Italian descent who immigrated with her parents to the United States from Italy as a baby. Although she was five years older than Adam, she was automatically attracted to him. They grew up similarly, both coming from middle-class families who owned their own stores, and her parents had actually owned a fruit and vegetable stand. They married in 1988 while Adam was still in college, and when I see photos of Adam and Elena together, I don't know why, but they kind of remind me of the Ken and Barbie killers. If you know about that case, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Elena has blonde hair, blue eyes, she's really pretty too. And then you've got Adam, who clearly most people would think is an attractive guy. He's got dark brown hair and blue eyes, which you don't see all the time. I guess you could say that in an odd way, they're the kind of couple that you would look at them and think they're the it couple because they're just gorgeous people, you know? I'm not trying to glamorize these people, by the way, they're horrible. But I'm just saying, you wouldn't suspect them to have such a dark side to them given their backgrounds, and looks can be deceiving too. For Adam and Elena's loved ones, it was easy for them to paint Jay as the aggressor and a terrible human. After all, they reasoned, he was the one who backed his car into a rock while Adam had his body sticking out of the window. They blindly believe Adam killed Jay in self-defense, despite the mounting evidence against him presented in court. Adam was held on a $270,000 bond. He would spend a total of eight months in custody, and his family eventually posted bail for him, and he remained free for nearly two years until his trial began. Even though he was an accused murderer, he somehow was able to keep his cushiony job at a plastics manufacturing company. Must be nice. Attorney Jack McMahon was the prosecutor who oversaw the Emory trial, and like every other prosecutor, he tried his hand at pretrial negotiations. The prosecution team had offered Adam a 20-year sentence in exchange for a guilty plea to manslaughter, but it went about as well as one would expect. Adam refused. In his mind, he deserved to be exonerated, and he wasn't going to have it any other way. He wasn't about to go down without a fight. Listen, he exercised his constitutional right to a jury trial with his peers. You're entitled to it in this country, and of course you should exercise that. But I think opting for a trial, in a way, was almost a precursor to what would ensue in court. And it also really showed how much of a narcissistic human being he was. Because, as you know, with narcissists, they can never admit when they're wrong. <laughs> the way that Adam would behave in court was a testament to his narcissism and refusal to admit any wrongdoing. At the trial, presided over by Judge Linda Savage, Adam's true colors were on full display in that courtroom. His lack of remorse was palpable as he and his defense attorney argued that he was just as much of a victim that night as Jason had been. He continued to claim self-defense and used concern for his brother-in-law's safety as an excuse. The jury deliberated for five and a half hours and reached a verdict on November 10th, 1993, Adam's 31st birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday to you, huh? They found Adam Emery guilty of second-degree murder. And once again, and the Emery's and the Duracos would spew their hate. 
Through the gasps and tears sounding in the galley, Dominic, Elena's 27-year-old brother, erupted, standing from his sea and shouting at Jay's parents, You f***ing scumbags, we're going to get you. The basses were escorted home that day by police. Sadly, squad cars had to sit outside their house for days out of concern for their safety. I couldn't find whether Dominic or any other of Elena's family members were arrested for contempt and threatening the basses, but I really hope they did. Their actions were egregious and completely unacceptable. It blows my mind how these people had the gall to smear the names of completely innocent people. People who were grieving the loss of a young life. Despite the truth staring them right in the face. You know, I understand that they were upset about losing their family member to the justice system, but this is a prime example of ignorance being bliss. <laughs> a lot of people believe that the actions of Adam's family were that of people with class privilege, as Adam's family was wealthy and the Basses were not wealthy at all. They also believe that their aggressiveness was a sign of racism and thought that the family could easily get away with it because they were white. Class privilege is not uncommon to see in court systems. It's a tale as old as time. It wouldn't be implausible to believe this was a factor in the case because what the judge did next will boil your blood. Although Adam was convicted of second-degree murder and the courts possessed the Emery's home, the judge allowed him to be free on bail until sentencing because Adam and Elena's family put up three of their homes as collateral in order for Adam to make bail. But before Adam and Elena left, something strange happened. In court footage, Elena could be seen whispering something into Adam's ear. Some news outlets had stated that a deaf woman was able to read her lips and contacted police to let them know what was said. But either way, police watched the footage and then hired a professional lip reader. And what she said was chilling. Elena had whispered into Adam's ear, We will do what we originally said. You promised me. We should have done this before. End quote. Hours after the couple left the Kent County Courthouse, they made a trip to Kelly's Sporting Goods. It was there that they bought matching black swimsuits, striped socks, and 80 pounds worth of weights. 10 pound ankle weights, 10 pound wrist weights, and 20 pound waist weights. The store manager that day happened to notice that Adam grimaced at the cost of their purchases. So when the suicide theory came out, they just didn't believe it. The timestamp on the receipt that would later be found in their car read 3.53 p.m. After cashing out, they went and got drive-through dinner at Burger King, then drove to Newport where they bought a bottle of wine. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Rhode Island, if you want to go to Newport and are coming eastbound, so like for me, I'm from Connecticut, I would have to go over the Claiborne Powell Bridge, which links Jamestown to Newport. It would be around 4 o'clock that on this very bridge, they would be spotted, pulled over, looking down into the water. Then, at around 7 p.m., authorities found the couple's Toyota Camry abandoned, facing west towards Jamestown. Inside, authorities found a torn-up checkbook and the weights that they had purchased. So when the police and the Coast Guard conducted their search, they employed sonar, computerized maps of the ocean floor, and a human-detecting dog, but those failed to turn anything up. A warrant was issued for Adam's arrest anyway for violating bail. Authorities raided the Emery's apartment in Warwick, and although the couple was not there, they found a treasure trove of evidence that indicated that Adam and Elena had been planning to go on the run. 
They found $650 in cash, passports, and birthday and anniversary cards bought in advance for family members. An analysis of financial records found in the apartment showed that they had taken out $55,000 and split that sum into eight different bank accounts. So authorities believe that this may have been done in an attempt to hide assets in the event that the Bass family tried to sue them. However, warrants for those accounts showed multiple withdrawals. It was also discovered in the following days that when Adam was being held on bail, he was studying Italian in prison. So it looked more and more like they were planning on escaping. In 1994, a commercial fishing crew was out in Narragansett Bay when they pulled out their large net from the dark waters, hoping to get a good catch. But they got a lot more than what they bargained for. There in the pile of fish lay a human skull staring back at them, tangled up in the net. They immediately called the U.S. Coast Guard, and it was brought to a forensic odontologist, basically a forensic dentist. DNA and dental records would later reveal the skull to be that of Elena Emery. Her family didn't want to believe that it was her at first, but Elena had very unique dental work, and so that was also very helpful in identifying her. A short time later, a lobster fisherman pulled out the leg bones and a hip bone with his net in the waters around the bridge. Interestingly, the leg bones had yellow and blue striped socks that were eerily similar to those the Emery's had purchased at the sporting goods store. Police had them analyzed to see if they were Adam's or Elena's, and to do this they had used his mother's mitochondrial DNA and also some blood work, but from what I could find, there was no evidence concluding who the hip belonged to, but the leg bones did prove to be a match to Elena. So Elena is for sure deceased. Adam and Elena's family would experience multiple tragedies after what happened to Jay. Elena's brother Dominic would pass away in Situate, Rhode Island on July 12, 2002 at the age of 35 in a car accident. Adam's parents would go on to divorce and his mother would die of cancer shortly after. In 2004, Maria, the same woman who had been in the car the night of the homicide, would give birth to a baby girl prematurely. The baby, named Elena Nicole Williams, had extreme complications from the birth, and she would pass away in the NICU five months later. I will say that with how terribly Adam and Elena's family treated the Basses, it is very hard for me to feel remorseful for anyone involved, except for the baby and Adam's mother. I really do believe that when you continue to do horrible things to people that it comes back to you. In 2004, Adam was declared legally deceased by probate judge Daniel Procacci. The state of Rhode Island issued a death certificate to the family three months later, and another judge, Vincent Rogasta, signed off on the release of liens on the three properties. However, not everyone was convinced that Adam was gone. According to The Independent, the judge who oversaw the murder trial did not believe for one second Adam committed suicide, and many law enforcement officials are in the same boat. From the day he and Elena were alleged to have committed suicide and past 2004, multiple reports of sightings would come into the FBI system. They started in Connecticut, then trickled down south to Florida like a roadmap. Then he allegedly began to pop up in France, and then finally Italy. I have seen multiple theories on Reddit and in articles about what may have happened to Adam, 
one that would seem to be the most logical at face value would be that Elena and Adam did in fact have a suicide pact. But maybe they changed their mind on using the weights. And maybe Adam's bones are somewhere deep in the Narragansett Bay on the ocean floor, waiting to be found. According to the PS driver, Adam allegedly told a correctional officer on the day he was released on bail that he would never come back to prison and he would see to that. Attorney McMahon described Adam as a complete narcissist, and he had no doubt that the couple made a suicide pact, taking the coward's way out. Another theory presented is that Adam could have survived the jump. I'm not 100% convinced, but for some reason my gut is leaning more towards this theory, so just hear me out. The Clybourne Powell Bridge is an arch-shaped bridge, and its highest point stands at 219 feet above water. According to Coast Guard Petty Officer April Shaw, who has responded to numerous search and rescue alerts in the Narragansett Bay, stated on media record that bodies are, quote, usually found either immediately or within a few days. Hitting the water from that height and that speed, you are probably approaching terminal velocity at impact. They are hitting concrete, basically. Is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? No. You are probably going to have broken legs, arms, or cracked ribs. It would be very difficult for someone to then swim to shore." End quote. But could Adam have survived such a high jump? Stranger things have happened. On September 25th, 2000, a man named John Hines jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, California in an attempt to commit suicide. This bridge stands 746 feet high over double that of Clybourne. Although he nearly severed his spine and had numerous broken bones, he miraculously survived. How could he have lived through such a traumatic fall? Well, a sea lion just happened to see him drowning and swam over to him. He kept John afloat by nudging him until the Coast Guard arrived. John was paralyzed, but somehow by the grace of God, emergency surgery by skilled doctors helped him gain his ability to walk again within 14 hours. <laughs> it, it's safe to say that he is extremely lucky to be alive. Am I saying that Adam could have been carried to shore by seals? No. But I do wonder, if John Hines survived such a traumatic fall, could Adam Emery have survived a leap from a structure that is only half the height of the Golden Gate? Maybe. I think it's important to remember that if it wasn't for that seal though, John would have died. If anyone jumped the pal, I imagine it would have taken quite a bit of adrenaline to swim ashore, ignoring such searing pain. You also have to take into consideration poor wound healing without medical attention. It would have been a very slim chance had he gotten to a hospital and no one recognized him. How could they not? The whole tri-state area was on high alert during that time, not just Rhode Island. Adam was a wanted fugitive, and because of that, his case was making national headlines. The last theory I came across on Reddit threads, as well as the comments on the Unsolved Mysteries page, was that maybe Adam tricked Elena into jumping and selfishly stayed behind, abandoning his car and taking off on foot. This one just seems really unrealistic to me for several reasons. For one, these two were sickly in love by all accounts of their peers. Another thing is, I've been over that bridge at many different times of the day. I used to work out that way, and even during the time range in which the car was found, traffic isn't exactly dead. 
I don't know how anyone could run down that bridge without someone noticing, at least pulling over to check on them or even calling the police or 911. As far as the public knows, no one called in seeing a man running down a bridge. It was only to report the discovery of their car. The last update by police was made in 2020 when they announced that they are working with a digital forensics person in order to create an age-progressed photo of Adam. I have yet to see this image, but should I ever find it, I will definitely update you. Let me present to you a scenario. Person A, Person B, and Person C are driving around together in a car. Person A announces he wants to rob a bank. Person B and C are in on this plan and they agree to go with him to the bank. Person A holds the tellers at gunpoint and demands cash. The tellers fill his bag up with the entire contents of their drawers and he runs out the back door. Person B is the getaway driver, waiting for person A in the back parking lot. So person A hops into the car and they peel out of the parking lot. But the police are able to identify the offenders and a judge issues a warrant for all three. At trial, the prosecution argues that person B and person C are guilty by association because they knew the crime was about to be committed, but they engaged in the action of going to the bank with person A anyway. So they are very well going to be sentenced to jail too. So this is known as an association fallacy. And why am I bringing it up? Because Elena was never arrested, even though she admitted to handing Adam his knife and telling him not to forget it. Ronnie was never arrested, even though he stood in front of Jay's car so he couldn't get away. Basically entrapment. And Maria didn't serve a single day in prison either, even though she was the one who negligently identified Jay as a driver of the vehicle who hit Adam when he wasn't. An intent to harm could have been argued here. They could have all been tried and convicted as accessories by egging Adam on. Guilt by association is a real thing. It's very real, and yet... They all got away with murder instead, Adam included. Adam Charles Emery is a white male with brown hair and blue eyes. He is six foot one and approximately 175 pounds. He has ties to Connecticut and Florida, but he may be hiding out in Italy with some of the Duraco family members. As of this podcast recorded in September of 2022, he is 59 years old. He is featured on the Nine of Spades in the Rhode Island Cold Case Playing Cards deck, and he is also listed in the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, case number MP3667. Again, M as in Michael, P as in Paul, 36667. You may also refer to his FBI flyer for more details. This case is still considered active, and if you know Adam's whereabouts or may have spotted Adam at any point in time, please call the FBI field office in Boston, Massachusetts at 857 386 2000. Again, 857 386 2000.